Has anyone else ever had the adventure of driving in Italy? Raise your hand if you've ever driven in Italy. Okay, yeah, it is uh, the most daring cure for boredom that I can imagine. I have, uh, I've only driven in Italia a half dozen times, and that is six times too many. Um, rather than tell you what it was like, I want to show you a, a video. This is a very insightful cartoon made by an Italian, no less. Uh, and it will give you, I think this really gives you an accurate feel for what it's like to drive in Italy. Take a look. That, <clears throat> that is driving in Italy. Do you see the real issue? The real issue is no one is trained to yield. Now, it's funny to watch, but it's pretty hard to drive in a culture where no one yields in the same way. It's pretty hard to live in a church or a society where no one yields. The Apostle Paul was very fearful that the classical Roman churches and all of us who have followed them would end up looking like this curmudgeon or, or driving like like that video. So, God gave us a powerful reminder to yield in the book of Romans. Romans 12 to 16, God guides the Apostle Paul to use, to use two really brilliant concepts. He gives provision and precept, and he uses those to drive his point. And, and they're always tied to two different verb forms. Let, let, me, let me show you how this works. The, the, the precept, the, the statement of how we're supposed to act, is always tied to a blessing, to a provision from God. So we start in Romans chapter 12. First two verses of Romans chapter 12 tell us this precept. And by the way, it's an imperative verb. This is something you are supposed to do. Present your bodies to God. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. How can that be done? Indicative verb. You need to view the mercies of God. It indicates that God has been merciful to you. Therefore, you can present your body. Romans chapter 12, 3 through 11. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. That's the precept. Because the provision is God has given to you. He's given to each. Therefore, you can give. <clears throat> Overcome evil with good. The end of chapter 12. That's the imperative. Because the indicative is you've got hope. And you know God is going to repay. Romans chapter 13, give to each person whatever is due them. How can you do that? Because authorities are established by God. That is God's indicative provision. Owe nothing but love to anybody, says Romans 13, 8 through 10. Because the provision is God's given you love, and love fulfills the law. Put on, end of chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus. That's the big, the big uh, precept you're supposed to do. Because God has provided for you this wonderful indication, it is time for you to wake up. And that takes us to chapters 14 through 15. Chapters 14 and 15 serve as a blueprint, blueprint for toleration. 
This is about how you get along within the body of Christ. Pastor Jericho began this section with his message on tolerance. And now we get to continue that thought with a practical emphasis on yielding to one another as an outgrowth of our yielding to God. But in our self-sufficient thinking, yielding is very hard. Thus it follows that tolerance is very rare, even in churches. Everyone else is driving selfishly. Everyone else around is looking out only for themselves and their own ideas of right and wrong. Everyone else is demanding that you have to speak when I tell you to speak and say what I want you to say. In such a world, yielding is hard. But it is so important. It's, it's so, so important that God keeps emphasizing it again and again. Look, in Philippi. Uh, Paul writes, God writes to the people in Philippi, and he tells them, respect each other. Yodi and Syntyche, I urge you to get along. In Corinth, he says, be in harmony. What is Apollos? What is Paul? You're in this together. And then in Rome, to the Romans, he's just very blunt. He just says flat out, yield. In Rome, he says yield because he has to get firm with us because this is so tough for us. In fact, we can only do this thing that God wants done because of what God has done. All God's people said, amen. Look at our notes. You, got, uh, you downloaded a bulletin online, I hope, or you got one when you walked in. Uh, take a look. The precepts and the provisions. Those, those divide Romans chapter 14, verse 9, where we begin today, uh, through chapter 15, verse 4, where we're going to end today. Divides it into three parts. This is so cool. As in all of Romans 12 through 15, so in our section today. Every imperative verb, that is every statement that we're to take as a precept for how we're supposed to live, is coupled with an indicative verb about something God has provided. The, the indicative verb reminds us of this privilege, this provision we have, and that provision leads us to rely on God's grace to, to rest on His Spirit for the doing of the precept. So there are three in our section today. The first indicative verb is God is going to judge. God is going to reward. Therefore, the imperative that follows from that, do not place obstacles in front of other people. The, the pre provision is God has given you a conscience. So because He's given you a conscience, therefore, if you're unsure about something, don't do it. It's wrong. Example of Jesus is our last provision. Jesus didn't please himself. Therefore, you should please your neighbor and not just yourself. The overarching theme there is that we should yield by trusting God and through him yielding to our brethren. Again, in human society, this is very rare and difficult. But it is not impossible. It is doable because of the provisions of the Father, the example of Jesus, and the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us. So, let's embrace these commands that teach us how to yield. The first big idea comes in verses 9 through 12. In your notes, I title this, Prepare for the Test. Look at verse 9, chapter 14, verse 9. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and here's a quote from Isaiah 45 and 49. As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The provision or the privilege is that each of us is going to answer to the Lord. Look up here. Uh, Vema is the word that Romans 14 uses that we translate judgment seat. Vema... It's an official platform. <clears throat> uh, in Latin, it's called a rostrum. Every authorized Roman city had one. It was a place where Roman citizens received judgment, usually in the form of rewards. This was a privilege. 
because only citizens stood before the Bema in the, the manner that is referenced here. Non-citizens, non-Roman citizens were not provided the full protection of Roman law. And they were never given rewards at the Bema. Uh, the photo up here shows the Bema at Corinth. Uh, that's the place where the Apostle Paul stood on trial before uh, Gallio, the Roman proconsul who discovered he was a Roman citizen. In texts like, uh, like Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul borrows that image of the Vema and he uses the word judgment seat to declare that every single citizen of heaven, that's every one of us who trusts in Jesus, we are going to stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus. We will be judged by Jesus as he sits on his Vema. This judgment is only for believers in Christ. Non-Christians are going to face the thing called the great white throne judgment, which is detailed in the book of Revelation. This bema is for citizens of heaven only. Look, here are the pertinent scriptures. Look, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skillful master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is whom, everyone? Who is it? Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved only as through fire. 2 Corinthians picks up the same Bema idea, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Whether we, at, whether we are at home or away, and by the way, in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, at home means in heaven with the Lord, because we're citizens of heaven if we've trusted Jesus. So whether we're at home, meaning in heaven or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, there are wonderful Christians, wonderful Christians who see punishment in these passages. I don't. I agree with some of our Puritan forefathers who felt that the Bema is all about rewards. The Bema is where God exposes my supposedly good deeds to His holy fire and nearly everything gets burned up. And even what remains must be understood as a grace gift from God. Truly, there is nothing that we bring to the Bema that isn't empowered and enabled by God. That's why, that's why this has to be called a provision. God provides for us to be rewarded. Some of our forefathers in Christ lived here in the city of Heidelberg. Anyone ever been to Heidelberg, Germany? Uh, it's usually America's favorite town in Germany. They, the, the, our forefathers there, our Christian forefathers, had to really fight for their spiritual freedom. So they took biblical things quite seriously. To teach themselves and to remember them, these wonderful Christians developed a memory tool called a catechism. Their catechism was so insightful and so simple that it has lasted 500 years. And now it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. They did a really nice job with this provision in Romans 14 that each of us is going to answer to the Lord. Look at what they said. Question 62 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? We're so holy. Why can't our good works be considered holy before God? Answer from the Scripture, because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Okay, follow-up question 63. But do our good works are nothing? Does not God promise, and He does, to reward them in this life and in the next? Answer, He does. Yet... 
The reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. This motivates us. This is the privilege, the provision in Romans 14, that God graciously allows us to partner with him so that we receive gracious gifts at the Bema. And there's another sense in which we should see Romans 14.10 as a provision. God has let us know that a test is coming. This past winter, a number of youth in our church turned 16. I I don't know what was going on in the spring of 2003, but uh, for some reason, we had a a big crop of new 16-year-olds this winter. Now, where we live, there's a special test that one can take only when one turns 16. And not everyone who studies with us is from this culture. So uh, kids, teenagers especially, tell those who aren't with us, what's the, what's the big test that's part of life at 16? What is it? That's right, your driver's test. That's it. The big test at 16 is the driving test. The driving test is a really important way for our state to make money. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm so, let, me, let, me, I'm so, let me try again. The driving test is a really important way for Texas to reward those citizens who study hard and prepare to receive the reward of a legal Texas driver's license. When a teenager reaches 15 in our culture, he or she usually starts working on driving, much to their parents' chagrin. They get ready for the test they know is coming. That privilege of knowing that we're going to face a certain test of our good deeds, we're going to face certain judgment, that leads to a precept. And the precept is, don't block the brethren. Don't make other Christians stumble. By the way, that's what we headline atop the right side of our notes. Don't block the brethren. Look at the very next verse. Very next verse. Verse 13. Therefore, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide to never put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Don't judge. God will judge. He doesn't need your help. Remember, chapters 14 and 15 are talking about life in the church, a life of good deeds and good choices for living as Christians. Let's continue our driving theme. Um, Professional racers compete according to a, a, a somewhat unique mix of individual and team. So every single driver and his crew is trying to win. But... They also are trying to help the other people who are part of their, their team, which means they're all funded by the same, by the same over company, okay? That's how it works in racing. So um, whether you know racing or not, you can get the idea here. So let's suppose that uh, number four car and number two car are on the same team. They aren't in real life, but just assume for this picture. It's the, it's the beginning of the last lap of this race. The number four car is one lap behind. There's no way number four car can win the race, okay? But the number two car, who's his teammate, is in first place. Now, number 88, this car, 88 car, is right behind the two car, and he is gaining and really pushing. All right, you see the scenario there. 88's trying to come up and take first. Two's got a chance. Four has no chance, but his teammate's a two. In every single racing scenario, what does the four car do? What does he do? Tell me. He blocks. He, he blocks. He slows down. He tries to drag. He does everything possible, puts his life in danger to block the 88 car. That's good teamwork. But should any car ever block his own teammate? Yes or no? No. Listen, God further develops the concept. Look, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. Still, 
to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it's wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Stop there. As Pastor Jared pointed out earlier in chapter 14, when Paul discusses the one who eats, the one who does not eat, he's discussing two people, each of whom is convinced that he is doing a good thing for his spiritual health. This is, this is not discussing sin. This is talking about disagreements over how to live out the Christian life healthily. And Paul says, don't judge each other. Tolerate. Aim for harmony. Try to build each other up. So, so, um, so three couples are in the same life group and they, they each have a new baby. Okay, uh, Jim and Jane think that their new baby should be picked up immediately every single time he cries. The minute he cries, he should be picked up and comforted. Carl and Caitlin don't agree with that. They think that they should wait five minutes, let the baby cry for five minutes so baby learns baby's not in charge. That's their thinking. Pedro and Pam basically have an attitude that if there's no toxic waste smell, then everything's good. So they, they just let the baby cry. All right. Do you know, and I hope you do, the Bible gives absolutely no firm resolution on this whatsoever. <laughs> and yet... I have seen friendships dissolve. I have seen small groups splinter over this issue. And each couple judges the other and builds up these ancillary scriptures to try to prove their case. Instead, knowing that God will ultimately sort all differences out, that Jesus will reveal good deeds done from good motives and reward them, then we should get off of the judgment seat and we should get on with the blessing of yielding to our brethren. This is not being soft on sin. This is yielding to each other on disputed issues of good works. In fact, God takes this, this up a notch. Look, he, he takes the concept even further. I need to be so yielded that I not only quit judging you, I actually adapt my behavior to fit your needs. I, I, I quit littering on the roadway in front of your car to use our driving theme. So, when I'm in Italy, you, you guys know I don't teach in a tie, but I do in Italy because if you don't have a tie on in Italy, it is not considered appropriate. You're not, you're not taking God's word seriously, so I wear a tie. When I go to Germany, when I teach in Germany, I drink beer. Ugh, nasty stuff. Yeah, I, okay, I sip beer, but I have to because only, I don't, I don't have to, I choose to because only the weirdest cults there don't drink beer. So if I'm going to be accepted by the honest, I've got to sip a nasty yellow brew of evil. So um, when I go teach at, at young church plants, at new church plants, or I go consult, which I do all the time, the, the music usually makes my ears bleed. It's so loud. All right? I don't say a word. I just enjoy them and enjoy the Lord because, because that's what's best for my brethren. Here's the point. The point is that when I get caught up in my personal preferences, I've forgotten the point. Verse 17 reminds us that if, if we keep the kingdom of God from spreading because of some personal issue, we have neglected what we are all about. This life is not about you or me. It's about God's kingdom, period. Listen, 
I, I want to say to you what I think may be the most important application of Scripture to this age. Don't litter the roadway in front of God's other drivers. Shut up. Don't throw out your opinions to smack on somebody else's windshield. You'll, you'll probably cause a wreck. And even if you don't, you know what's going to happen? You're going to miss out on rewards later when Jesus puts all of your words and works to the test. Which leads us right into the second main issue, verses 22 and 23. Take a look. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Now, God gives a balancing point here. Yielding to the weaker brother does not mean sinning. Anything not done from your understanding of Scripture is sin. Everyone else jumps, it doesn't make it right for you to jump, if you believe jumping to be wrong. The point, the point here is that while you accommodate your weaker brother, at least the one you consider weaker, he thinks you're weaker, um, you don't violate your own convictions that have been formed in Scripture and by the Spirit. Be true to your conscience as it's been developed by God's Spirit, God's Word. And that's the provision. God, God has given you a conscience. You see, earlier in Romans, Paul established this idea of a conscience. Maybe the most brilliant philosophy uh, ever, ever written by humans is his, is his passage on the inbuilt sense of right and wrong that is built into every human. Made in the image of God, we have an internal sense of what is correct. Look at what Paul says. This is absolute genius. Romans 2, 14. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. It's absolutely brilliant. God has given each person a conscience. Even non-believers have an inbuilt sense of right and wrong. Here, let, let me show you. I, I need a volunteer. I need some young person who wants to come up and act. All right, Carson, you were the first. You had your hand up first. Uh, come stand right over there. All right, right there in the spotlight. Now, this is called Reader's Theater. Here, step right up this way. There you go. You're going to need a little room here. Uh, this is called Reader's Theater, which means you don't say anything, but you act out whatever I read. Okay? The only thing is, when I say freeze, you've got you to gotta freeze. You've got to stop. Okay? All right, here we go. Let me, get, let me get my script. It's over here. All right, here we go. Um, <clears throat> you ready? George, th that's you. You're George. George was kicking a soccer ball around with his cousin. George was really good. In fact, he was by far the better dribbler. Let me see some dribbling. There we go. And his cousin was becoming frustrated. Keep dribbling, George. Freeze. Very good. All right, now, the, uh, stay frozen. By golly, all right. Now, the audience is going to choose the cousin's name, all right, this frustrated cousin. Uh, the cousin's name was, you can choose Eustace or Beelzebub. All right, um, Eustace, there was, once a, uh, there was once a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. My favorite beginning to any book ever. Um, Eustace, how many want the cousin to be named Eustace? Okay, how, how many want him to be named Beelzebub? Oh, gosh, what are you getting online? Are you getting, is it one way or the other? Mix, like, okay, all right, all right I got it. Okay, okay, you ready? All right, unfreeze. Cousin Eustace Beelzebub <laughs> was so grumpy that George had a hard time not laughing. Eustace Beelzebub was a spoiled brat, and he was very angry any time he didn't get his way. Being polite, George covered his face for a moment so that Eustace Beelzebub wouldn't see him chuckling at his frustration. Suddenly, suddenly, while George's face was covered, freeze, 
While George's face was covered, you get to choose what Eustace Beelzebub does. Eustace Beelzebub either kicks George in the shins or punches George in the stomach. How many want George to be kicked in, I want uh, George to be kicked in the shins? Raise your hand. How many are for being punched in the stomach? All right. Okay. Um, unfreeze. Eustace Beelzebub kicks George in the shins and then punches him in the stomach. George collapses and dies. Quickly. All right. The end. Give George a hand. That was awesome. Way to go, George. All right. Audience, freeze. Tell me. Every court everywhere in the world would say that Eustace Beelzebub is guilty or innocent. Which is it? Guilty or innocent? He's, he's guilty, of course. Why? If we're just evolved scum, if there is no God, if the fittest really do survive, then why is what Eustace Beelzebub did to George wrong? Why does everyone everywhere living under different cultures, different laws, different traditions, why do all people believe it is wrong to kill your cousin over a game? Unless it's a long game of risk or monopoly, then it's okay. Anyway, um, why, why does everyone think it's wrong to kill your cousin over a game? Because God has incorporated into the human they don't have to have read Scripture. The Lord has provided a conscience. And for Christians, that provision runs even deeper. You see, once we trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and He uses that conscience to guide us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It is a privilege to have the Holy Spirit guide one's conscience, and that takes us to the precept. The precept is, don't speed. Let's read verses 22 and 23 again. I want to read them from the New Living Translation. I think it captures the, the pith of the passage really well, but we'll have to back up first to get to it. Here we go. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep that between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe it is not right, you are sinning. Let's consider driving the speed limit as an example. This is a picture from Colorado. Occasionally I end up in a caravan of people that are driving somewhere, usually vacation spot like Colorado. And given that most of my friends are believers, the other cars tend to be driven by believers as well, which is great. Here's what often happens. The other drivers have absolutely no problem with going 10 or more miles per hour over the speed limit. Um, one of my friends, <clears throat> I shall not name any names as I look at you, one of my friends who does this often is a police officer. And by the way, he assures me that this is not unsafe and his conscience is totally clean on this. And that is fine. That's between him and God. My conscience is not. My personal trouble is not with the tickets we might get. My problem is I'm convinced that when Romans 13 says be subject to the governing authorities, that includes the posted speed limit. Therefore, my conscience is pricked when we speed. So what I usually do is I just, I just choose to bow out of the convoy and I arrive a little bit later. I don't say anything to my brethren. I don't judge them. I, I just stay closer to the posted speed. The lost time is worth it to me if I can arrive with a clean conscience. But consider this. Suppose you're one of the other people in our caravan and you also are not truly comfortable with going 80 in a 70 mile per hour zone. But you keep speeding anyway. Is that healthy? Yes or no? No, it's not. Look at the text. Slow down. 
If we do anything we think isn't correct, we are sinning. We are violating the provision of our spirit-powered conscience. The application of this applies to every aspect of life. For, for some of you, especially you students, you could put drinking or, or, or party going into this category. For, for parents, you could, put, um, you could put the movies that you watch or the ones you allow your kids to watch. Whatever the category, the principle remains. Don't speed. Arrive safely with a clean conscience. Accommodating others, which we're supposed to do, does not include doing things that you know are wrong. All God's people said? All right. Now, having given that balancing point about not judging yourself by speeding, Paul returns to his main theme in chapter 15. Read verses 1 through 4. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, quote here from Psalm 69, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Please your neighbor. This is the ultimate in yielding. The provision is you have the ultimate example. Even Jesus didn't please himself. Isn't that amazing? You know, human beings almost always worry first about pleasing ourselves, even subconsciously. Jesus didn't. God the Son, fully human, fully God, had all the opportunity and all the power possible to please himself, and he didn't. Instead, he concerned himself with serving others. That's what we celebrate here every month. This communion is a remembrance ceremony that Jesus chose not to please himself. When he was in that garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that this cruel cup of crucifixion might pass, but he yielded to the word of the Father. Jesus fell down and humbled himself. He offered his own body as a sacrifice for you and for me. If you trust him as your Savior, in just a moment you should come forward to collect these elements that are, that are in remembrance of him who didn't please himself. And by the way, speaking of not pleasing yourself, you have a perfect opportunity to, to live this out this month. To, to slow the germ spread through this plague, uh, some of our elders and staff are going to serve you the Lord's table with gloves on. I know you have missed seeing us almost as much as we've missed seeing you. You want to give us hugs, you want to shake our hands, but you can't contaminate the glove. So, you're going to walk forward, you're going to hold your hand like this, and we're going to set it down in there, and you're going to spill it on us, and it'll be fine. I mean, you're going to take it back to where you belong. Does that sound good? All right, if you're a believer in Jesus, please stand, exit your road to the right, and come and receive the elements here.
underneath in your cups. You've got two. If you can, get out the bread. This bread, this bread's in honor of his yielding himself for our salvation. Let's take in remembrance of Jesus. Whether you're here or at home, church elsewhere around the world, take whatever you have to drink and recognize that that, that cup is in memory and in honor of his blood shed for you. Take this in Jesus' name. Jesus, thank you for thinking of us for not only pleasing yourself. You may be seated. Thank you, everyone. There's one last loose end I'd like us to tie up in our text. Uh, look at chapter 15, verse 3 again. You see, you see the quote there? It's from Psalm 69, verse 9. Why does God quote from that particular scripture? No, let me show you the whole thought in Psalm 69. In fact, I'd like you to read it with me. Uh, join me on the underlined parts. Uh, David is praying to Yahweh, and he says, For I have endured insults because of you. And shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. Because zeal for your house, and by the way, it doesn't mean any physical building. It, it, there wasn't one at that time. It means the Lord in heaven. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I mourned and fasted, and it brought me insults. I, I wore sackcloth as a sign of, of mourning, taking your sin really seriously. I wore sackcloth as my clothing, and I was a joke to them. Those who sit at the city gate, talking about the elders, talk about me, and drunkards make up songs about me. David is reproached because in the eyes of all these different people, he cares too much for the things of God. It, it seems goofy even to his family to care that much about God's house. Now, this is amazing. Look at this. Look at the way God uses that quote. Sets up direct parallel. Three big ideas in what we read about David. Three big ideas about Jesus in Romans 15. Jesus is reproached because he cares too much for something as well. What does Jesus care too much for? According to Romans 15, what is it? It's us. David is concerned with God's house, not a physical building. Jesus is concerned with God's house because we are a royal temple built upon Jesus as the very cornerstone. God has Paul point out this awesome parallel that Christians are the very house of God. Do you see the parallel? Jesus was willing to endure even more abuse than David did, all because of his love for this living house. All God's people said? And that example is the provision of God. We are enabled to love our brother so much that we please him into building him up into the fullness of God's house. That does not mean that we become people pleasers in the sense of trying to make people always happy. Some of us have that tendency, and it's very ugly. Rather, God is calling us to be pleasers of people in that we build them up. Look, look up here, please. The word translated please in this text is aresko. Aresko, really important Greek word. Uh, it's your fancy word for the day. You get to say aresko on the count of three. One, two, three. Aresko. Uh, aresko, it began as a legal term, like a, a judge would use. It was a term for being made uh, justified, being made in harmony with the, the virtuous law. But over time... Aresco adopted a more interpersonal sense. It, it became a term for pleasing other people, building them up through self-sacrifice. Aresco provides trust. It provides harmony through self-sacrifice. So when you look at a lot of um, uh, Grecian monuments around the world or even Roman monuments that are written in Greek, you see the term Aresco. 
And it will, it will almost always have some phraseology like this to help you understand what they were meaning. The one who made a virtuous sacrifice for the good of the commonwealth. All right? That, that's what is being described here. Memorial Day uh, is a great way to think about it if you're an American. In the modern United States, Memorial Day is an Eresco-type holiday. Uh, we celebrate those who laid down their lives for the good of the commonwealth. And that's our precept. Our precept is please your neighbor for his good. Christians are commanded to erase scope, to give ourselves for the creation of trust and harmony through sacrifice for the good of the commonwealth. And boy, is it needed. Trust and virtue are in rapid decline across the West. I want to show you something. This is a horrifying but unsurprising chart. Probably the most insightful and interesting doctoral dissertation I've read recently. I used to grade those things. Ooh, that's a tough one. But uh, this one is absolutely brilliant. This guy, Brian Grimm, uh, did his dissertation on the appearance of certain words in English over a 200-year period, from 1800 to the year 2000, okay? And uh, yes, his name is appropriate because what he finds is very grim. Thank you. I thought you would catch that. The, um, here's what he did. He looked first for this phrase, lack of trust. He developed a little algorithm that looked through every book, uh, which is nearly every book ever written in English in the Google Translate, and it looked for... It looked for the phrase lack of trust. 1800, the word almost didn't even exist, which is really astonishing. Doesn't appear hardly ever in any writings. It slowly raises and during the Civil War, but even then, not all that much. People were killing each other, and it hardly even raises. But boy, we hit the 1960s, rockets up. What happened was that, that lack of trust spread throughout society. In fact, it affected even the highest reaches of government. I want to show you a different, this is a different study. It's by Pew Research Center. And this is public trust in government in the United States, 1958 to, to 2019. And, uh, and it starts in 58, Eisenhower, 78% of people said, I trust the American government. That dropped precipitously during the Johnson administration, Vietnam, kept dropping, dropping forward, and Carter had hit a real nadir. You had a bit of a resurgence that lasted through all the Reagan years. This high point right here is when the Berlin Wall fell, and communism ends up being defeated. And then it woo, really tanked down during Clinton, but then rose during his last year's administration. This high point is 9-11, the beginning of the war on terror, and then it just cascades down from there all the way through Bush and Obama and Trump, all the way down to where less than 20 percent of Americans over the last eight years have really trusted the United States government. Now, the researcher who put this together, Mr. Grimm, he noticed something, and this is what his whole dissertation was about. Trust and virtue are tied together. And he proved it by looking at the words. Okay, now, this is amazing. Look at how often in 1800 virtue appeared, and I know that percentage may look small, but there are 800,000 words in the English language. And for virtue, that one word to appear that often, that's actually very, very often. But virtue begins to go down, and it goes down to where trust is, and then stays right with trust in a very close line all the way through. You see, as virtue goes down in a society, so does trust. That's why police brutality and racism spark fearful riots. That's why fearful riots spark unvirtuous, lack of trust, police brutality. When you're not virtuous, as virtue declines, everyone around you becomes untrusting. As they become untrusting, virtue declines further. And then other people don't trust. But you and I have a secret weapon that can break the cycle. We, we can raise trust, not only among brethren. You and I can raise trust in society as a whole. We can erase go. 
We can please others by virtuously sacrificing for their common good. Instead of becoming more fearful all the time, which you know is a real temptation for every one of us, instead of becoming more untrusting all the time as virtue drops around us, let's do something different. Let's start a revolution where we are concerned with pleasing our neighbors for their good instead of just pleasing ourselves. Let's raise the virtue meter up by virtue of our sacrifice. And I mean real virtue, not fake virtue signaling whatever in the world that nonsense is. I mean genuine virtue, which rarely ever signals itself. If we'll do that, you know what happens? Trust will follow. Yes, of course we're going to disagree still. We're dealing with human beings. Yes, of course, if we sacrifice for people, people are going to take advantage of our kindness. They are human. But because of what God has provided for us in Jesus, we can do what God has commanded of us. And in a world that is in need, that is life-saving. All God's people said? I want you to look at the life change objective in our notes. We don't usually do this, but in your notes, every time at the top is an objective. What I'm trying, I think the Lord wants us to get at through this text we're studying that day. And today, it attempts to summarize this whole passage in one word, yield. Yield. Do you know when you drive in Rome, you are 50 times more likely to be injured than you are driving in London, even though they are equally congested? 50 times more likely to be injured in Rome. Why? Because no one there yields. You and I have a choice. You and I have a choice. We can add to a culture of injury where no one yields, or we can practice and we can teach yielding. Let's yield. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will yield because of what you have done. Let us do what you want done. Not being people pleasers in, in the sense of kissing feet and, and dancing to tunes at people's play in the square, but genuinely giving ourselves for the common good. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.